Open the Word of God, please, with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. I thank God for the men that have gone before in the prayer room and here in this pulpit already this morning. I read to you verses 13 through 16 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Amen and amen. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father in heaven, you have heard the prayers that have been offered already this morning and the one just offered. We come humble before thy precious word. My job description from Thee is to preach the Word. We thank Thee for the Word. We thank Thee for the words in our tongue that You have brought to us. We tremble before them. Heavenly Father, let the power of the Holy Ghost assist the preaching of Your Word for the conviction and conversion, for the strengthening and perfection of all your saints. We thank thee and bless thee in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. We have a wherefore that opens up the verse which is going to make a transition in this chapter from what we have heard so far. There hasn't been an imperative verb yet. If you can remember some of your English grammar moods of sentence structure and verb meaning, subjunctive moods and infinitive moods and indicative moods and imperative moods. Imperative means it's a command which we have three of in uh, verse 13. Indicative is just a declaration of facts, which we have had in verses 1 through 12. Because all that has been declared so far is what God's done for us. And in verse 13 begins what we ought to do for Him. And so the verb mood, and it is important to know those verb moods, even if you didn't pay attention like I didn't pay attention when it was offered to me freely on a silver platter at a young age. And had to learn it later. But I want you to notice this dividing in the chapter right here. There have been four sections that have come before this. The first two verses are his salutation and the mention of election. Verses 3 through 5 are the 13 phrases of God's grace toward us that include an eternal inheritance. Verses 6 through 9 are the trials of Christians' lives that lead to God's glory in the end by the perfection of their faith. Verses 10 through 12 
are the glory of gospel promises that are yet held out in the future for us. So by those four sections and those twelve verses, Peter has laid out in a common manner what God has done for us to move these persecuted, heavy saints in Asia Minor to serve Him. This is common in the Bible. With great joy, I have shown you in the past that Romans has its first division at the end of chapter 11. Romans 11.36 mounts up with exclamatory joy and glory in God to whom, by all things, to whom is all things, Amen. Romans 11.36 And for 11 chapters, the verbs are primarily indicative because it is God described as showing all grace toward us in the obtaining of eternal life. And then verse 1 of chapter 12 starts out, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. And we have that here. I've shown you the same thing in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 ends up with an amen in the middle of that epistle because 4.1 begins with, I beseech you that you walk therefore. Walk. Your walk in life should be reflective of what God has done for us. We have that right here as well. There's 344 wherefores in the Bible and 1,220 therefores because the Bible is a logical book. It's the logic of faith. God has done these things for us. He is absolutely true. And we ought as a consequence to be obedient to Him. These Jewish believers were in heaviness and the Apostle has comforted them with 12 verses and now he's going to exhort them to not allow their heaviness nor their persecution nor their trials to overthrow their thoughts. The imperative verb gird is following this transitional word of drawing a conclusion from the first 12 verses. Wherefore means that it's introducing a clause or expressing a consequence or inference from what's been stated. On which account, you can use instead of the word wherefore, on which account gird up, or for which reason gird up, or which being the case gird up, or therefore gird up. All of This word is drawing a conclusion from 12 verses. Because God has laid all this out for you in the final phase of salvation, as a result of that, as a result of hearing about it, gird up. So there comes that imperative verb based on what God has done for us. Now I want to show you that if we cheat a little bit, and cheat, when I use it in this pulpit, this way means looking ahead. If we look ahead to verse 17... There is negative information. We've only had positive. But the negative information in 17 is, If ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. So for 12 verses, it's positive encouragement. For the 17th verse, it's a warning that God does not care who you are. If you do not live righteously, He's going to judge you, and you ought to pass your time in here sojourning in fear. Wherefore, gird up. So as when we get ahead, we're going to appreciate verses 13 through 16, that the apostle had told us what to do to avoid the judgment of verse 17. 
This wherefore of conclusion or consequence or inference should provoke some self-examination on our parts. When we see the Holy Spirit laying a word like this into the middle of an epistle, 13 could start out with the word gird. But it starts out with the word wherefore. Because when God presents truth to us from the Bible, there is a consequence to it. There is an inference to be drawn from it. There is a conclusion that should affect us. We should do something about it. That's why I read to you Zechariah chapter 7. The former prophets had told the Jews that God desired pure religion on the inside and their outward actions rather than their ceremonial religion. And because they hadn't heeded that, he put them into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And so he was warning the regathered generation of that same lesson. Jesus spoke in parables. And he described four kinds of ground. The wayside hearer, which doesn't, who doesn't prepare, doesn't focus, doesn't listen well, dozes, and thinks about other things. Satan comes and snatches away the word of God and it never bears any fruit. There is the thorny ground hearer who responds with joy initially, but then he walks out of the assembly and he is distracted and enticed by the things of this world. And so the thorns grow up and choke him out so that he bears no fruit because the things of this life become more important to him. Then there is the stony ground here that springs up with joy, but the soil is very thin. And when the sun rises, because it doesn't have a deep root system, The sun causes it to wilt and it doesn't bear fruit. And then there's good ground that bears 30, 60, and 100 fold. And Jesus laid those four grounds out. And if we're honest with each other, we have each been all four grounds at different times. But the Lord then summarizes that whole parable about the sower with these words. The second time I've used them today, take heed therefore how ye hear. Forget about these Jews that I'm preaching to, that I'm hiding this information from. By using parables, I'm talking about you apostles. Take heed how ye hear. Take heed. Be diligent and careful and cautious about how you listen to what's going to come out of this pulpit today. Every time we hear the Word of God, there should be a wherefore. What am I going to do with what I heard today? And see, Peter is able to draw a conclusion from the 12 verses that we've already heard. Now we look at those verses as being positive descriptions of God's glory to be revealed at the second coming of Jesus Christ. But there's a wherefore after hearing those things. If God is going to do such great things for us, based on such great things He has already done for us, then we ought to live for Him. So we have the word wherefore here. So much more could be said about it. He that turneth away his ear from the hearing of the law... Even his prayer shall be an abomination. Turning away the ear from hearing God's law. I may say some things today you don't really want to hear. So what? This is God speaking to all of us. Hear it. Let us all be like Samuel. That little boy in his bed who heard his name called by the Lord. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Amen. Will you be that way with me today? Because we've got a wherefore, and we've got some imperative verbs that we're 
duty-bound to want to obey. The next phrase, finishing out this first clause, gird up the loins of your mind. That is a creative metaphor by a fisherman. Gird up the loins of your mind. This is nowhere else in the Bible. Girding up your loins is throughout the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, it's throughout the Bible because it was a very common practice among the Jews. They wore long flowing garments. They didn't have very much underneath them. That is why the priests had to have breeches. And you can read about breeches and the dimension of breeches and what body parts they covered. Because when God's priests ascended up on the steps to the altar, they were to have breeches under those long flowing garments so that they they would never reveal anything even by accident. But they had long flowing garments. And if they were going to be doing something intense, and if they wanted to run fast, move quickly, they had to pull up those garments around their waist and tie them off with a sash or a belt called a girdle. A girdle is not an object this long that you wear to hold in your pelvic area, you know, when you're overweight. You know, the, the, gir- the old-fashioned girdle that is in most of our minds. It's just a belt. It's a sash. You gird it about. Right. And so they'd pull up those garments and gird it about. It'd be strong enough to be able to hang a sword from it. But that's girding up your loins. Your loins are the part of your body between your hip bone and your bottom rib. That section right in here... That's all the bigger that it was. See, it didn't extend down onto the thighs. It wasn't a girdle like that. It was a sash and a belt. And so you'd tie it up and you would tighten it up. So you had this tightening like you had a weightlifting belt on for strong exertion, fast running. You had tightness around your core in the Bible, in Genesis. Do you know that metaphors like this are still common? Do you know that men still put advertisements out for employment that they want a roll-up-the-shirt-sleeves kind of a guy. They want a guy that's going to get his sleeves up and dive in and get himself a little bit dirty and get himself a little bit involved because he's going to operate intensely and fast, so it's roll-up-your-shirt-sleeves. Do we? Have you ever heard that? In, this is Peter, the fisherman. Gird up the loins of your mind. So we don't have to talk anymore about loins or girdles. It's, uh, it was simply a metaphor describing the desire to move quickly or to do strenuous work, to be strengthened and to, held in, to be held in place. And so to gird up the loins of our mind are to rule our thoughts. Gird up the loins of your minds. These persecuted believers over there in Asia Minor of the Roman Empire, far from their native country, far from their place of worship, were being persecuted. And when you're persecuted and you're heavy, it's easy to get discouraged and to start thinking discouraging thoughts. And so the rule of the Word of God is, gird up the loins of your mind. Get mentally tough. Get mentally disciplined. And don't let thoughts loose that are contrary to the Word of God. You remember everything that I've said in the first 12 verses. It will come to pass. Jesus will come. Jesus will rescue you. You do have an inheritance. It will never pass away. It will never fade. It is incorruptible. So gird up the loins of your minds. Get tough. Tie them up. Tie them up. Tell yourself to shut up. Do you know that you are different than your thoughts? You can tell your thoughts, get lost. 
I will not think that thought. David would say to himself, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? You have an operating part inside you, and I'm not going to waste your time or mine trying to define them and name them because that's irrelevant. What's important is that you have parts of you inside that come at you, and you can talk to them and talk about them and tell them to shut up and get lost and shut them down and replace them with a better thought. Don't we struggle with that often? And some of us struggle with it more than others. Lord, help us. These are wonderful words. Here's a fisherman waxing quite eloquent. Gird up the loins of your mind. You do not have a right to your thoughts. Your thoughts stink. Your thoughts are vain. There is no place in the Bible that you are told to be a thinker. Which when you are told to think, if you're ever told to think, when you're told to meditate, when you're told to muse, it's to muse on this. It's to muse on Him. It's to muse on righteousness. It's to muse on His works. It's to meditate on God and His glory. Anytime it applies to us, it's to self-examine ourselves in the light of God's Word. It is to say, you know that thought, that line of thinking that you've had recently? You know how that you're thinking about that other person? Cut it off. That is wrong. Get down right now on your knees and pray for that person. That is a godly man. That is a great man and that is a holy man. And that is a man who's girding up his, the loins of his mind. When our circumstances come at us and we think, the Lord's forsaken me. No! He hasn't forsaken you. It is time for you to say, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Get away from me. That that is not true because Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6 say, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. That is what we have to do by girding up the loins of our minds. Our minds will run ragged. Our minds and our heart are so closely connected. The Bible says they're desperately wicked above all things. They are deceitful. They lie to us. They're corrupt. They're vain. God hates the thoughts of man. Your thoughts do you no good until you bring your thoughts into obedience to the Word of God. And my job description in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is to go after your thoughts, my thoughts as well, and bring them all into captivity to the obedience of Jesus Christ. For instance, a brother this morning has come to me rejoicing in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15 where it says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. If there is anything in your heart that is not at peace, you are sinning. You are wrong. Bring it into obedience. Let the peace of God rule. Now what let is an imperative verb. That means God has provided the peace and God has told you how to have peace and you are to let it take over inside. So you've got to, you know, when when those bitter thoughts, when those angry thoughts, when those vindictive thoughts pop up in your mind, I will not. I'll tell, I'll tell you, get down and pray. Get down and pray. Lord, I am not going to think that thought. In fact, I am going to pray right now for that person that I'm wanting to think evil about. This is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to gird up our loins, tighten them up. Don't let those thoughts run around. Our minds will drive us crazy if you let them loose. Your thoughts are bound to your deceitful heart. Your thoughts are corrupt according to the deceitful lusts that reign in our flesh, and they will destroy you if you let them work. Your thinking is not good. 
It is not a religious process. It is not good analysis. It is twisted, corrupt, confusing, confusion. We want to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. If Christ says, let the peace of God rule in your heart, then that's what the only thing, when it says rule in your heart, how much room is there left for things that aren't peaceful? None. Because peace is ruling. Whoso looketh on a woman to lust after her in his heart, when you see that woman and you start thinking about her, man, I'm talking to you primarily, blast that thought. I will not think that thought. I will remember what the Lord God has said in His Word about me. Let her, let your wife be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished with her love. Three in, three verbal phrases there in one verse. Imperative, telling us what to do. And we can do it. God, you gave me my wife. I can only think about her. God, she's your daughter, and I'm sorry for thinking about another. Rip that out of me and take it away. If you would live that way, man, and if I would live that way every day, we can have victory over sin. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is there to strengthen us. If a wife says, if I submit to him the way the pastor of this church preaches, I'll be a doormat. My husband will walk all over me. Get rid of that thought. You have no idea what you're talking about. That is confusion and rebellion of a real idiot. If you will submit to your husband the way you should, God will take care of you. If you raise your wicked head in rebellion against your husband, God's going to leave you to your own devices and it's going to destroy your marriage. I will not think that thought. Lord, you made me for him, Genesis 2 and verse 18. You made him to rule over me, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. You made me to reverence him, Ephesians 5.33. You made me to call him Lord like my holy mother Sarah did. And that's what I'm going to do. Gird up the loins of your mind. Don't let those thoughts go. They always want to go. I don't think there's very many here that have a wilder mind than mine. I don't say any of this for any honor whatsoever. I have multiple tracks and I can think multiple tracks while I'm preaching or anything else I'm doing. And I hate all the stuff that comes up. And I have learned. I had a watershed event in my life a year ago. I have preached this text to you four years ago and a year ago based on the 17th verse. But God has been very gracious, and I understand girding up the loins of your mind better than ever before. Sometimes I wish I was mindless, and I was just like one of these robots in a factory that some of these guys are repairing. Somebody could just set me in the right direction, I would just go. Instead, there's all this stuff flying in and flying around, and that's a sinful thought? No. I will not think that sinful thought. Gird up the loins of your minds. Now you know that the primary application of it right here is for persecuted saints in Asia Minor who were under great heaviness that the apostle had reminded them of all the great things of the final phase of salvation and was thus encouraging them to tighten up their minds not to get discouraged, not to give up the faith. 
but to hold on to their hope until the end, which either is going to be the coming of Christ or their death, which is what he's going to say in the second half of this verse. So that is the primary application. But while we're here, I cannot waste this precious opportunity to encourage you and me to gird up the loins of our minds. And I I could preach on this for a couple of weeks. But I have before. And if anybody truly wants to hear it or read it, then go look up the outline. Your thoughts can destroy you. Four pages of single-spaced information from the Bible about our thoughts being destructive. God doesn't want you to think unless you're thinking this. Amen. You don't know anything. We're corrupt. Mental discipline and toughness is our religion. We don't sit around waiting for inner voices. We don't sit around for the Holy Spirit to tell us that's the truth. He's put it in writing. This is more sure than hearing God's voice from heaven. If you sit around saying, I'm going to wait until the Lord confirms to me on the inside what was preached today, you are opening yourself up to the devil. Where does it tell you in the Bible to open yourself up and wait for some confirming voice on the inside? It tells you to submit to the Word of God, just like it's going to tell you in verse 16. Because it is written. Because it is written. Not because there's a testimony inside of me that says God is holy, and because it says God is holy on my inside, therefore I should be holy. No, we should be holy because the Bible says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. It is written. We bring everything back to the Word of God. Everything back to the Word of God. If, you know, I could run all over with all kinds of different illustrations. If we start thinking that, you know, capital punishment really is kind of cruel. Where did you get that idea? Capital punishment is beautiful. Because God said it was beautiful and God said it was holy. And so we love it. And so when any thought, that's a very simple one. I know it doesn't step on... I hope it doesn't step on anyone's toes here. I I like some of those so that you can just think about them objectively. God said it, that settles it. I will not think anything that even varies from that. The instinctive thoughts of the natural mind are as corrupt as hell itself. Ephesians 4, 17-19 is the most graphic description of terrible thoughts. A loose mind is dangerous. What's a loose mind? It's long flowing garments that haven't been girded up. It's just whatever thoughts come in. You know, well, that's a good thought, Johnny. Boy, you have an active mind, Johnny. You think about so many things, probably the rest of the world doesn't think about all your good thoughts. Wow, you have insight on things. And you just start flattering yourself with these thoughts that are flowing through you. That's a loose mind. A loose mind is dangerous, deadly, dysfunctional, and derelict from its proper duties. Our duties are to obey the mind of God. And He's revealed His mind in the Bible. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong unto us and to our children that we may do all the words of this law. Stewing. Everybody here know what stewing is? Stewing, simmering, and analyzing is wickedly deceptive and dangerous. Do you want to substitute? Read the Bible. If you're thinking about another person, 
read the Bible and find out what it says about how you ought to think about other people. Crush every thought to the contrary. Say, that is a lie, self. I will not think that thought anymore. I'm going to think this thought of forgiveness, love, charity, and so forth. If you're a wife and you're thinking about your husband, I can't stand submitting to him. Then go read the verses in the Bible that tell you about your role as a wife and say, I am not going to think those kind of rebellious thoughts anymore. I am just going to think the thoughts that the Bible tells me I should be thinking. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength condemns negative thinking. It's all positive toward God. Do not let thoughts happen to you. Do not let thoughts happen to you. They are not valuable. Your thoughts are not valuable. Make all your thoughts serve God. You control your thoughts. Don't let life happen. Rule your life. Don't let thoughts happen. Rule your thoughts. Train your thoughts. Choose your thoughts. It's in your power. Job would say, I have made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? You say, well, I just can't. Listen, I've heard this so many times. I just can't help it. I see a beautiful babe and my mind just wanders. I can't help it. Job 31.1, time two. I have made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? You absolutely can control your thoughts. The Apostle Paul would say that he had a flesh that was so controlled with sin, but he said, I then with the mind serve the law of Christ, but with the flesh, the law of sin. It is our body that wants to do wrong, but you can control your mind. You know, some some melancholies, if we look at you cross-eyed, you think that we hate you, and we're just about ready to go to the pastor and ask for your exclusion. And I'm not laughing at any one of you. Rule your thoughts. We're going to warn you a couple times before we exclude you. I mean, and I'm not, I'm not making fun of anyone. And anyone here that I've had such a conversation with, forgive me. But you're the only one that knows. Well, so do I. Oh, Lord, help us. Do not let thoughts happen to you. They are not valuable. Your thoughts aren't valuable. Your thoughts aren't important. Your thoughts aren't helpful. And the more you think about something, the more probability there is that you are dipping down into the cesspool of confusion, corruption, double-mindedness, and the devil's wisdom from hell and beneath where bitterness and envy and strife exist. And it just leads us to every evil work. Just say no. You know, the world says that about drugs. We say it about thoughts. Just say no. I will not think that thought. I will not go there. You can do it. If you are in the habit of valuing your thoughts, you're in trouble. So I hope today will help us all. And I'm sharing something. Just listen. I'm 57 years old. I've been a pastor for 30 years. But I'm telling you that by God's grace and over time and thankful that there's maturity and strengthening and growth of grace and the Lord helping us, you can have the victory. I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Ease, ease, a life of leisure, ease, and inputs attack our minds more than ever. No other generation has had so much leisure time. No other generation has had so many inputs to our minds. Are you with me on those two points? 
for we have much more of both. We have to be much more careful. To the degree we're not working. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet. Why does he go to sleep? Because he's tired. But he goes to sleep. He doesn't think. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet. You know the difference. I know the difference. Oh, to hit that bed and have your wife tell you in the morning you were gone in 10 seconds. And you didn't move. You're usually thrashing around and moaning and groaning, but you didn't. And you know it because you wake up better and you didn't have any of those stupid thoughts. I have warned this church before. The underemployed, the unemployed, you know, that, that aren't busy from sunup till sundown. There's too much time for your minds. And I just want to exhort everyone to stay busy. My, my outline says get busy. We have to be busy. And if we wear ourselves out, there's less time for thinking. See, if we're, if we're striving in a job, someone else is thinking for us. They're saying, get this done. And so we're sweating it out to get it done on time. We don't have time to think. But if we're sitting around and we've been taken away from that kind of responsibility, the, the probability of getting in trouble with our thoughts goes up. I've seen it over and over, and it should be, it should be obvious to you. The devil tries to devour us by sending thoughts that must be quenched. What's a fiery dart in the Bible? But a thought that we want to quench with the shield of faith. We want to put up the shield of faith and have it go, because the flame went out. I believe what God said. When those thoughts come. Jesus was so good at it in Matthew chapter 4. It is written three times in a row to the devil. It is written. It is written. It is written. The thought of foolishness is sin, according to the Bible. You can choose to the content of what you think. Look at Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. I need to move, or, but, but oh Lord, help us. I love this. Imp- the first imperative verb of 1 Peter. Gird up the loins of your mind. You can control your thoughts. You can tell a thought to get lost. You can tell a thought that it's a lie and it's wrong. You can tell yourself, I'm going to think these thoughts from now on. David did that in Psalm 42 and 43. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? That is ridiculous that you should be cast down, that you're thinking all these negative thoughts. I'm never going to get back to Jerusalem. I doubt if I'll ever be crowned king of Israel. You know, those were the negative thoughts that David was thinking. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Hope thou in God. See? He's talking to himself. Hope thou in God, for he shall yet be the strength of thy countenance and thy God. When David came over that hill in 1 Samuel chapter 30, after fighting and a hard ride and march with his troops, he comes over the crest of the hill. They're exhausted. They're excited about getting home, and as they crest the hill, Ziklag, their hometown among the Philistines, is there's smoke going up into heaven. It's burned. Everyone is gone. The 600 men and David had lost their wives and their children. They were taken captive by Amalekites. The 600 men, being the sons of Belial they were at times, thought that a good measure would be to stone David. So now, now think about David. He's exhausted. 
Israel and the can you do we do, do sometimes our troubles mount up? Yeah. Absolutely, they mount up. But we know about Job, but I want you to think about David. David was supposed to be king, but Saul was still king after many years. Israel and the Philistines were fighting, and David wasn't there to fight God's battles. If you know David, you know that that was seriously plaguing him. In fact, he was living among the Philistines. He's exhausted from a trip. He gets home and crests a hill. His family is kidnapped, and his house is burned to the ground. And then his men, comforters they were, wanted to stone him. You know what it says in 1 Samuel 30 and verse 6? I'm thankful to be a member of this church. He encouraged himself in the Lord. It's a choice. David uses the words in Psalm 42 and 43, and he tells us about it in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Keeping your heart with all diligence means that you stop on any thought contrary to God's Word. Otherwise, you don't even know what your heart is. You dictate what you love. You dictate what you think about. You tell the false thoughts to get lost. I'm sorry for you and with you, brothers and sisters, that have a nonstop 24-7 monster that's throwing thoughts at you all the time. I am. But God is greater than your thoughts. And He's given us the strength to rule them. And you can rule them. You can have wonderful thoughts that empower you and energize you toward godliness all day and all night if you will choose to think them. If you have a bad thought, then shut it up. Confess it immediately and forget it. Rather than think, meditate on God and His works. Instead of thinking, as I've taught before, start thanking. Because all destructive thinking is the opposite of thanking. Let's keep going. Please. 1 Peter chapter 1. Much more could be said. Much more has been said. And I hope you might consider it. You know, you could read an outline in just 10 minutes or an hour or however long you wanted to spend looking at it. It's called, Your Thoughts Can Destroy You. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Peter's words in their primary application were for those saints that were under heaviness because of persecution, that they should not lose hope, but that they should tighten up their thoughts and not let themselves be discouraged or lose confidence in God's promises of what he was going to do to them, for them at Christ's coming because of the situation in their lives. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. Let's define be sober with Peter's words in this epistle. 4-7. 1 Peter 4-7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. 1 Peter 4-7 tells us what he means by being sober. Instead of getting wrapped up in the things of this life because they're going to be all taken away, I am not going to deal right now because I would distract you and you would enjoy it. The end of all things in this verse. It's just that we know the end of all things is coming. And because all things are going to be taken away from us, we should be sober about life. And sober here means spiritual seriousness about life, watching unto prayer, so that we emphasize prayer more than we do turning a buck or making a buck. Because we know that all those things that we're making a buck for to buy are all going to disappear. So Peter is telling us what to be sober means. How about 5.8? 
Chapter 5 and verse 8 right here. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And do you know who he goes after? Those who are not sober and those who do not have their minds girded up. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. The devil can easily figure out what you're thinking. Like a lion. Does a lion go for the strongest in the herd? Or a flock in Africa? Never. They lie in the bushes at the edge waiting for some lame, wandering, young, foolish animal to step out. And they go after that one. And if you will resist the devil, the devil will flee from you. But here's what it means to be sober. To be spiritually, religiously serious. Because if we relax, the devil can get us. If we relax and get involved in the things of this life, our prayers will go down. That's what it means to be sober. Back to those saints that were under heaviness. Saints, I've given you 12 verses of encouraging promises of what God's going to do for you. Gird up the loins of your mind. Tighten up your thoughts. Be spiritually serious about life and don't let down your guard against the devil. Don't let down your guard and get too involved in this world. I wrote you in an update. It was the Friday update sent on Saturday due to some email problems. But I reminded you in there of a rule of the Bible. Without carefulness. 1 Corinthians 7.32 God wants every one of us to be without carefulness. Now he doesn't even use the words reduced carefulness. He says without carefulness. Well that's basically impossible, so that we know that it's a strong, absolute term with a relative force to us to reduce the care in our lives. 1 Corinthians 7.32, that's being sober. We get carried away with the things of this world. This is, what, this is the Word of God to us. Peter is just the secretary. This is God's advice to us to live a happy, fulfilled, powerful Christian life that pleases Him. And hope to the end. Hope to the end. Hope is a function of the mind. Hope is a function of the mind. Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope. Because hope is a certain expectation of good things promised. How certain is your expectation? It's a function of your mind. I have read the promises of God, and I have read them again, and I have been around brethren who have reminded me of them, and have witnessed to me. I have heard the testimonies of martyrs as they've gone to the river or the stake, and it has all helped me hold my hope. Because you can lose hope. You can be hopeless. And hope to the end, that's a verb. That's imperative. Hope to the end. It's a choice. Gird. Be sober. Hope to the end. A lively hope's already been provided by God raising Jesus from the dead and putting him at his own right hand. All you have to do is read about Jesus, that his new body was pretty spectacular, that when John saw him, he fell at his feet as dead, that his new body would just pass through walls. See, Jesus used to use doors, but now he could just pass through walls, and he was seated at the right hand of God, and there was a sea of crystal, and there were four beasts, and there were four and twenty elders around him, and All the choirs of heaven were singing blessing and honor and glory and power to Him that sitteth upon the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And you read all that and you you say, that's my lively hope because you know what? 
That's what the Bible says we're all going to be doing. Do you know that the Bible says in Revelation that we're going to sit with Him in His throne? Somebody will say, it's a big throne. Be careful how you talk about the Word of God. Because I'll answer to you with 1 Corinthians 15.34, Thou fool, just believe the Word of God without trying to figure out all of its metaphors until we get there. We're going to sit with Him in His throne. We're going to rule over the nations with Him. We're going to have our own white horses. And there's going to be pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. That's holding your hope to the end. I believe that. I believe that. What's your alternative what you're going to believe? That President Obama wants the best for you? That your company wants the best for you? Your company wants the best from you. The only real hope in the universe is in our God, whose name is I am that I am. That is incredible power, eternality, independence. Rejoice in Him. Hold out your hope to the end, either death or the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the grace that is to be brought unto you. Here in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, it says, For the grace, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end. Just keep on hoping every day until your hope turns into fruition because you're either with Him by death or He has come for you for the grace that is to be brought unto you. That grace was told us in verse 10 where it says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. And as we've studied these 13 verses, that grace is the final phase of salvation, glorification, Jesus Christ coming back from heaven and giving us our eternal inheritance. So hope to the end. Don't just hope for a week. Don't hope till next Sunday. Hope to the end. And you know the Lord is going to bring tribulations and trials our way. He's going to bring afflictions and heaviness. He is going to test us and try us. He is going to prove us like like we prove gold with fire. But we can hope to the end. And that hope is not, oh, I hope I might be saved. That hope is, the Lord is coming and He's going to rescue me. Or, When I depart this life, I will be instantly with the Lord. So that we, like Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 can say, we are confident while we're in this body that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Bang! You're there. You say, how do I, how do I increase my hope? With the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God and faith is the foundation for hope. You read God's promises and you believe them. You read 2 Corinthians 5. You read about the Lord Jesus Christ. You read about Stephen. You read about the other examples in the Bible. You read about the promises of God. Every promise of God that's found in the New Testament is as certain as Genesis 1-1 that says in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. You never saw it. You can't duplicate it. You can't theorize about it. You can't explain how something came out of nothing. But you believe Genesis 1-1 We're all creationists in this room. Can we all die confidently in this room? Hope to the end. It's a choice. Gird up the loins of your mind. Don't think negative thoughts. Who wants to tell you you're not a child of God? The Holy Spirit or the devil? Your old man or your new man? Gird up the loins of your mind. Tell your thoughts to shut up. That is not true. 
I have the evidence of eternal life and I've had it for 50 years, 40 years, 10 years. I know I'm one of God's. I love Him and He will have to cast a soul into hell that loves Him well. And that'll never happen. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh, brethren, Jesus hasn't revealed Himself to the world yet. But He's going to. And it's going to be a wonderful day. The passage that tells us about it says that you are going to admire Him in that day. Do you know what He's going to come with? His mighty angels. Do you know what He's going to come surrounding Him? Flaming fire. Do you know what He's coming to do? To wreak vengeance on all them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know God? Did you enjoy a little tiny bit? 40 or a 100 or a 1,000 sermons that were preached on knowing God? Do you obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you keep His table? Have you been baptized? Do you love Christ? Do you love the brethren? You are going to admire Him in that day. To them that believe, He is precious. Oh, when He appears, we will rejoice and admire Him and He will be precious to us. But to them that believe not, He will wreak vengeance on them. 1 Peter chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which in His times... See, Jesus has a has a timeline and a time plan. You just don't know it. Which in His times, He shall show. And I do love these verses, and I'm not sorry if I repeat them too often, but it's 1 Timothy 6, 13-16. Which in His times, He shall show who is the blessed and only potentate King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Amen. to whom be honor and glory forever and ever. Right. Amen. Amen.